Welcome back to a very special episode of Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. Today, we'll be talking with one of my favorite Boston sports fans, former associate conductor of the Kansas City Symphony and current music director of the Knoxville Symphony, Aram Demergen. I'm Mike Gordon, principal flute of the Kansas City Symphony. I'm Stephanie Brimhall, the Education Manager. And I'm Jason Sieber, the Associate Conductor. So many of our devoted symphony fans out there will no doubt remember our friend Aram, who preceded Jason as Associate Conductor here in Kansas City. And we didn't have this fancy pants podcast back in those days, uh, so we thought it'd be really fun to catch up with him and see how things are going. Since leaving Kansas City, Aram has served as music director with the Knoxville Symphony, and he also got married. That was a pretty fun party. (laughs) Fun indeed. So uh, Aram and I, just like Jason and I do, Aram and I got to work really closely together on programming uh, children's concerts and family concerts. We we got into a little bit of mischief, but had a lot of fun. And uh, one of my fondest memories of working with Aram on... uh, these uh, children's concerts was watching his very, um, let's see, flexible and enthusiastic can-can dancing <laughs> at the front of the stage uh, when we played uh, the can-can, which was pretty awesome. Nothing if not flexible and enthusiastic. <laughs> and in fact, that's in the opening line of my bio. <laughs> Aram Demergen is known as one of the most flexible and enthusiastic young conductors of his generation. And that's your that's your bio pick, right? Like your pick in your bio is of you doing the can-can with leg in the oh, air. Oh, yeah. yeah, absolutely. <laughs> From every possible angle. Well, oh, in addition to being a great conductor, Aram is also a fellow sports nerd, which we will talk a lot more in detail about later. He, being from Boston, of course, is a Red Sox Celtics Patriots fan. Uh, Me being from the Cleveland area, I'm, of course, a Browns Cavs Indians fan. And I have to just take a small moment before we start our conversation with Aram today to say that as of the taping of this episode, the Cleveland Browns are five and two, and the New England Patriots are two and four. I can't quite remember the last time that after seven or eight weeks of the football season, the Browns have a better record than the Patriots. So I did a little research. Uh, The last time that the Cleveland Browns even had a winning record at the end of a season was 2007 when they ended up 10-6. and That was the same year, Aaron will fondly remember, that the Patriots went undefeated at 16-0. Of course, they lost the Super Bowl. It's what I like to call the 18-0 season. That was the 18-0 season. Actually, 18-1 if you count the Super Bowl. But an amazing season by the Patriots. Well, as, you know, as, as, as this whole narrative about Boston and Cleveland sports indicates, you know, time is a relative thing. So, you know, we can... <laughs> that I'll, is true. I'll, I'll, I'll take different slices. I choose to recognize the 18-0 slice uh, of time. Choose whatever you want, Aaron. That's fine. But we all remember that was a Super Bowl the Patriots lost. Of course, they won many other ones, but they did lose that one. Now, the last time that both teams uh, had the same record at this point of the season was in 2002. They were both three and four after seven games, and both teams ended up nine and seven, and both of them went to the playoffs and lost their first playoff game. Uh, The last time Cleveland had a better record than the Patriots after seven weeks was 2001. The Browns were four and three. The Patriots were three and four. The Browns went on to have an abysmal season, as per usual. The Patriots only lost one game for the rest of that season, and they won the Super Bowl that year. 
Now, the last time that Cleveland actually finished a season with a better record than the Patriots was 1994. Cleveland ended up 11-5. and The Patriots were 10-6. and And Aram, who was the head coach of the Cleveland Browns in 1994? One William Belichick. Bill Belichick, the current coach of the Patriots. So that just shows you that at any team that Bill works with, of course, Coach Belichick, it's going to be a great team. I have a question. Aram, how old were you in 1994? Do you even remember 1994? I remember aspects of 1994. I was was eight years old. Jason was fully grown by then. So, you know, of course he remembers that. Is that an Andrew Lloyd Webber musical, Aspects of 1994? I think that's Aspects of Love. Anyway. I wasn't even a football fan at that point, actually. I My sort of um, indoctrination into Patriots fandom was in 1996 when it was clear the Patriots had a very good team and were poised to make a playoff run. Being the nerdiest of little music nerds um, at the time, you know, I, I, I liked baseball a little bit, but the Patriots were what it was all about. And I actually have my older sister to thank for my Patriots fandom. She basically came home to my parents who had no idea about football and said, you have to get Uncle Steve, who's, you know, our cool uncle, our sports fan uncle, you know, you have to get Uncle Steve to sit him down in front of a TV and watch the playoffs together and teach him about football because he's going to need to be able to talk about it with the other kids in school. And like with anything, I immediately became not only interested in it, but obsessed with it and bought all of the books on the history of the game and, you know, how, you know, the way you draw plays and, you know, all of that. And that obsession has lasted into the present day. All right. Uh, I fear that Mike has gone to sleep or with all of this sports talk. So um, I, I think, Mike, are you there? <laughs> huh? What? Uh, uh, oh, are, are we doing a podcast? Oh, okay. Oh, sorry. Great. Sorry. I know it's Beethoven walks into a bar. It's a music podcast. I understand, but I, uh, this is probably a chance I'll never get again. So I wore my Believe Land shirt today for the taping. And I had to give Aram a little bit of grief over the Patriots. I'm sure they'll turn their season around and it's all going to be great. But let's let's talk about music now uh, with our good friend Aram Demersion and officially welcome him to this episode. It's great to have you today, Aram. It's great to be here, Jason. And you know, my apologies for continually interrupting a sports-related flex that I know that you were looking forward to. But <laughs> it is it it is it is Beethoven walks into a bar today, and I am a Boston sports fan. And one thing that is true about Boston sports fans is we can't shut up. <laughs> Well, I will say uh, I I am actually also a native New Englander and a Boston sports fan, but no, I I can't put myself in the category of uh, of Aram certainly, uh, and I I remember a few of those uh, Patriots teams from the nineties. Uh, the the memories of those uh, decades are are foggy, and the the Patriots were kind of sad for most of those years anyway so that's okay but uh but yeah we actually are uh, musicians and we're here to say a little bit about music um <laughs> and you know i'm really excited uh to have aram here today we all are because you know one of the things that uh all of our listeners have hopefully come to appreciate is uh how integral our associate conductor is to uh, the symphony and how much we work together uh, and enjoy working together and what a 
close uh, relationship that person has with all of the musicians and staff. And and uh, Aram uh, was that person for four wonderful years uh, with us before Jason took over. And before we get any further into this, uh, I just thought it would be great to catch up with uh, Aram, what's been happening in your life since you were in Kansas City. I I have uh, a very fond memory of picking you up uh, from the airport one day, and uh, as we were tooling down I-29, uh, headed back into town, you received a phone call from one uh, individual with the Knoxville Symphony informing you that you were officially going to become their next music director. And uh, I remember being so excited for you and working on not driving off the highway and also being quiet so that you could, you know, act professional uh, while you were no doubt super excited. So so tell us what's happened uh, in the intervening years since you received that phone call and uh, how your career has blossomed and changed. That was a a whirlwind of a morning, you know, I had to be reminded actually, before we got on this podcast, you had to remind me of the, you know, the, the minute by minute details uh, of that day, because I, I mean, I don't know, it might, it might've been one of those things where in the excitement, like, you know, my memory blacked out or something like that, but I'm, it's, it's coming back to me now. I, I was flying back from New York city where my um, fiance, now wife, my fiance at the time, uh, was was living and was attending graduate school, and uh, I think I had had my I had had my flight the night before canceled and was flying in on an early morning flight. And the reason why we were peeling down uh, the highway, I think, is because we were on our way to a rehearsal. But um, it was a really interesting few days because uh, most of them were spent on the phone. I have clearer memories of standing in uh, st- standing in the lobby of the Kaufman Center on the phone, uh, getting multiple calls, telling people who I was just meeting in Knoxville that, yes, I want to take the job. Yes, I'm very, very excited. And the beginnings of, uh, of getting a contract established, uh, very much not being inside Hellsburg Hall where I was supposed to be assisting rehearsals. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I could joke that on some level, it's like, well, I got another job now, so peace. But no, that wasn't what it was like at all. That wasn't what it was like at all. And actually, I was I was outside of those rehearsals uh, with the blessing uh, of Michael Stern and Frank Byrne, who most, if not all listening, uh, will know is the recently retired executive director, two people who were instrumental in helping me prepare for my interviews and for um, my auditions with the Knoxville Symphony. And it was interesting because I was really, you know, if you caught me in an honest moment, I was excited to be in the search, but I didn't think that I was going to get the job. It was the first music director search I was ever a part of. I was the youngest person by, you know, a significant number of years um, in the mix. And I already knew that I was leaving Kansas City, but I was planning my life such that I wasn't going to have a full-time job. And I had tried to fill up my schedule as much as possible with whatever guest conducting work that I could find. And I was happy to say that I had a pretty full schedule already. And then I get this music directorship. And so all of the weeks in between that I was going to spend studying, all of a sudden, we fill in with the Knoxville Symphony wherever we can. So over the course of the ensuing summer, uh, in the course of two months, I left my job, started a new job, got married, hmm. 
and set off on what still is the busiest and most exhausting year that I ever had. <laughs> um, and it's been a wonderful uh, four years thus far, both in Knoxville and beyond Knoxville. It's a great orchestra here. Uh, it's a great team here, an incredibly supportive staff and board and community. Um, you know, I was given something when I started out here, which, uh, you know, which not all conductors have the benefit of getting, which is a mandate from the people who hired me to move things forward, to push the envelope, to change things up. And um, that's both a really great instruction to receive, also a little bit um, daunting when you actually start to think, okay, how am I going to do that? But uh, it's been a really artistically fulfilling experience because generally speaking, uh, I've been able to sort of uh, follow my heart in terms of the music that I want to program, uh, leaned into building relationships in the community that we make sure that we bring on stage and put on our main stage series, Masterworks series, which has just led to so many creative projects uh, we created what I like to think of as the next evolution of Classics Uncorked, which I conducted in Kansas City, a series called KSO Unstaged, which is sort of the, I think the, the, the emotional seed of that was planted in Classics Uncorked. And then beyond that, I've been very fortunate to be able to uh, travel the country and meet and conduct uh, slowly but surely an increasing number of orchestras around the country. So uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a very lucky and blessed conductor. So you mentioned, and I definitely want to hear more about all the awesome things you're doing in, in Knoxville. Um, I've certainly seen a lot of that programming um, as it's happened, and it looks awesome and exciting. But you mentioned before, you know, having to prepare for these auditions and interviews and things like that. And I happen to have been on the committee um, the audition committee that hired both Aram and Jason. And so I've been through um, an associate conductor audition a handful of times and seen um, how that works. But can you talk a little bit about how the process for auditioning for a an associate or an assistant conductor position differs from that of a music director search and how those things, you know, I'm sure there are a lot of things that are similar, but there are a lot different there are a lot different. I'll say the biggest difference is um, the amount of time that it all takes. Uh, an associate conductor position or assistant conductor or resident conductor, we, you know, anything that's under the umbrella of what we call staff conductor, uh, those audition processes usually happen. The actual boots on the ground part of the audition most orchestras only happens in the course of maybe a day, one morning even. With Kansas City, it was two or three mm -hmm. days, depending on uh, what the audition was. And I'll say that Kansas City Symphony um, has had, and I assume still has by far, uh, the best assistant conductor audition process that I've ever been a part of. Agreed. Uh, for, a, for a music director search, I actually sent in my initial you know, materials for Knoxville in, it was in 2014. Okay. And I was offered the, yes, it, uh, I, I actually, I actually remember going home after conducting a Classics Uncorked and putting the finishing touches on the materials that I was going to send in. 
and staying up most of the night getting it all done. But uh, so, and it was it was more than two years later that I was offered the job. And in the time in between, there were there were many more interviews. There were at least two, I think maybe even three rounds of um, of interviews before I got there. Instead of going there for you know a day or two and conducting the orchestra in you know a handful of excerpts from four or five different pieces uh, and and you know being present with five other candidates which is the which is the way an assistant conductor audition tends to happen it's a little bit mm-hmm. you know it's, it's it's a little bit more um, it's a little bit more like American Idol uh, in Knoxville and in any music director search uh, I was the only one there for a week and whereas with an assistant conductor search you're trying to meet everybody inside the organization with the music director search in addition to doing a full subscription week and conducting two concerts with the orchestra and meeting everybody inside the organization you're also meeting everybody that's adjacent to the organization as well (laughs) anybody in the community that has a stake on some level in the organization because when you become a music director in any city, but especially in uh, you know in, in a city the size of Knoxville, you're really becoming a public figure in the community, and there is uh, you know there is a weight to that that transcends just the role that you play inside your organization. Um, it you know, and every music director search works slightly differently. In Knoxville, I, I was very aware that I was there to be reviewed to be the music director. And there was a concise number of people that they were considering, and I knew I was one of them, and I knew that I was in the finals. With other orchestras, the search can be sometimes a little bit more open-ended. Sometimes it's if you are a guest conductor, then you're in the music director search, and you maybe only find out that you're being considered after you've impressed enough people that they really want to get serious about talking to you about it. (laughs) Generally speaking, uh, as a conductor and as a guest conductor, you always have in the back of your mind that any time you're on the podium, you are somehow uh, auditioning for something that could be your next job because you never know who's watching you and you never know what they might be looking for and you never know what their plans are. Those are all really good points, Aram. And, um, you know, we're going through a music director search now here in Kansas City because Michael uh, Stern will be stepping down here in a few years. And I think that's really fascinating for our audience to be able to hear a little bit about that process because it is very different from an assistant conductor, as you mentioned. So you get the gig and that you've been there now for four years. How did you work to build connections with the musicians, the staff, and the community once you had the job, the organization in the city of Knoxville? Um, and talk a little bit about how that role once you receive a music director position is very different also from any other conducting position now that you're the boss, so to say. Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, in terms of building relationships, uh, it like with any relationships, it kind of happens over time. And there's an extent to which it happens intentionally, an extent to which it happens organically. Uh, it was really, um, it was challenging in that first year which was my music director designate year so i wasn't you know i hadn't officially taken the reins but in most capacities i was you know starting to get integrated into the organization uh it it was a challenge because i was uh 
in Knoxville very inconsistently. Like I had said, you know, we just tried to fit fit weeks in Knoxville into my schedule wherever possible. And um, I was fortunate in that I had uh, a lot of people to kind of guide me along the way in terms of building these relationships. I felt like every time I was in Knoxville, I was being introduced to somebody different. And, you know, kind of the way it starts out is, you know, every every board member and every donor wants to invite you to their party and introduce you to all the people that they want you to be introduced to. Uh, I had a really, really helpful team on the staff to guide me through all of this, especially my partner in crime, our, our executive director here in Knoxville, uh, to sort of map out, okay, you know, the next time you're here, these are the people who you need to meet. And sometimes it's just sort of a general, you know, we're going to go meet the mayor today. And like, just because it's good to know the mayor. And sometimes it's, you know, there are these people who are very important to our organization or these artistic partners that we work with a lot who you're going to want to get to know. And then sometimes it's, you know, in ensuing years, it's a little bit more, oh, I, you know, I have this project or I have this partnership that I want to make happen. And we sit and think for a while and people who know the community better than I do come back and say, okay, then, you know, this person is the person that you want to go do to talk about what you want to talk about. In that first year, it was very much, you know, meeting a bunch of people because uh, th there was a lot that they wanted to share with me. Uh, and there was a lot that I needed to hear. And there was a lot that I needed to learn about the community. And then eventually that transitioned a little bit more into a two-way conversation, whereas people gained uh, gained trust with me that I could start uh, uh, charting a course, I guess, for lack of a better word. And I would say that probably I spent the first two years sort of um, learning the community, learning the community, figuring out... Uh, I mean, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. You know, the last thing you want to do is come into a well-functioning organization and start making arbitrary changes and, you know, messing up, messing a good thing up. So, you know, the first two years were kind of spent learning the orchestra as an artistic entity and getting to know all of them as individuals. Okay, you know, like what... Every orchestra is different. What are this orchestra's strengths? What can we capitalize? What can we build on? You know... How can I learn, you know, research the history of programming? What's, what do I feel like is missing from the repertoire that I think would be good for the orchestra and good for the audience to hear? Where does that overlap with where my personal interests are? Um, and, you know, in terms of building relationships with the musicians, a lot of that happens between the lines, in stage, you know, in rehearsal uh, and in performance. And, you um, I, I think it's like with any relationship where it starts off, you know, a relationship between two people. There's a little bit more formality at the beginning. You're trying to figure each other out. And then the more and more time that you spend together, the more slightly relaxed the relationship gets. In terms of comparing and contrasting to, you know, mute these relationships as a music director versus, uh, you know, as the associate conductor, uh, it's, it's, definitely, uh, it's definitely different being the boss. Um, you, you know, you, I think you're very aware of um, the sort of the heightened level of responsibility and the extent to which you represent the organization, uh, the extent to which you're visible. I mean, in Knoxville, especially, you know, it's a, it's a smaller city. 
And you know, my, my, my friends who aren't from here, who aren't necessarily in the music uh, world, don't necessarily believe me when I say, you know, if I if I go out in downtown two days in a row, it's more likely than not somebody is somebody who I either know or somebody who knows me is saying hello to me on the street. Mm. And that just completely changes the, you know, little things that changes the way you think about what you're putting on, you know, what clothes mm -hmm. you're putting on in the morning before you go out. It changes, you know, uh, it, 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 it changes just the entire way you, um, not, not, not necessarily the way you present yourself to the world, but your awareness of the way that you present mm -hmm. yourself to the world. And then also in terms of the relationships with the people in the organization, it's just, it's, it's, there's a, there's a little bit more formality to it, which is not to say that there's less warmth um, or less joy in the relationships. It's just that joy gets expressed in slightly different ways. You know, like just for example, with musicians in the orchestra, I've built some incredible artistic uh, relationships and, um, you know, in incredible human, personal, cordial relationships with musicians here in the orchestra. But as opposed to when you were the associate conductor, you're not necessarily going to the post-concert hang afterwards. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I find that um, that interaction actually so fascinating. And it's, it's something I think probably a lot of people uh, who attend concerts don't think about. There actually is a difference in the kind of relationship you can have uh, you know, with an associate conductor versus a music director. And, you know, it's, it's the same here in Kansas city. I would say that, you know, I, and many, many musicians, uh, have a wonderful relationship with Michael. And I think it's fair to even, you know, consider him a friend for myself personally. And I'm quite sure he would tell you the same, but there's still, you know, are certain, um, uh, certain, um, uh, aspects of that, you know, relationship that have to be, you know, respected in consideration of the fact that he's, he's the boss, you know, and it's, it's a really interesting, uh, dynamic, but, um, so I, I want to change gears a little bit for a minute. Take us, take us back in time. You know, you're, you, uh, once upon a time were a cello player. I mean, still are, I know that, I know that you still play, uh, perhaps not in front of people, but maybe sometimes I hope sometimes, uh, Aram's a very fine cello player actually. And, and you and I, um, in a few respects, even share uh, some common experiences as young musicians. You know, we both grew up, grew up in New England. We both uh, came through the New England Conservatory uh, Youth Orchestra system as young people. So we, we share some mentors uh, through that, although not quite at the same time. Aram's just a couple years younger than me, so I don't think we were ever in youth orchestra at the same time. But um, talk a little bit about... about how you evolved from, you know, being an aspiring cellist uh, to to exploring conducting. Because I find that uh, so fascinating as a person who admired conducting and, you know, in a very, like, I want to be an astronaut kind of sense thought, oh, wouldn't it be cool to conduct an orchestra? But I never, <laughs> you know, I never made any honest effort to try to do it or had any honest desire to try to do it. So what point in your life did that happen and how did that, how did that evolve? Well, you know, Mike, you know, perhaps you never did it just, you know, j just because of that, that honesty that you expressed, you were just too honest to actually pursue <laughs> conducting. <laughs> <laughs> Is, is that it? You need to be delusional? <laughs> Delusion is a necessary ingredient, yeah. <laughs> no. Um, 
It's a great question. Uh, you know, music was sort of a, a fact of life for me from the time that I was very young. There weren't any professional musicians in my family, but there were, well, let me, I should revise that. There weren't any professional performing musicians in my family, but there were some very, very um, active and, uh, you know, my parents were both musicians who excelled to a professional level, uh, whether or not they actually pursued that as their profession. You know, my, my father could have been a professional violinist and my mother uh, was a and still is a teacher of many different subjects. And for much of my grade school life, uh, she she became a music teacher when I was nine years old and did that for 20 years. And she conducted our church choir and she started a children's choir for herself. So in a, in a few ways, she was my first conducting teacher. She was the first one to teach me how to do a 4-4 pattern. I was always a singer. I sang in chorus since I was seven years old and uh, started cello. When I was eight years old, after um, you know a, a brief dalliance with the piano and then the violin, but on some level, I think cello was the one that I always had my mind on. I just I, I wanted to be like Yo-Yo Ma. Uh, that was who doesn't that exactly who doesn't I, uh, I think we I, I think we should I think we should all try to be like Yo-Yo Ma. And you know, my honest feeling is uh, if if we all in, in the world could be 15% more like Yo-Yo, uh, the world would be a much, much better place. And yeah, and if we, and, you know, and, and if every professional, if, if every professional musician uh, could be 15% more like Yo-Yo, I think that, that classical music would be the most popular musical art form <laughs> that, 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 that's out there. But that's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm getting off the, I'm getting off the track here a little bit. Um, I was actually in element the same elementary school class as Yo-Yo's daughter, so I had a uh, rare experience of you know I I first knew who Yo-Yo Ma was from seeing him on Sesame Street and Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, and that was very cool. And then he was the chaperone on my school field trips. <laughs> and that's so cool. <laughs> and I I have a I have a very clear memory. Um, of sitting um, in the back of a bus heading to some field trip in Boston. I think it had to do with the Charles River. Uh, sitting next to Yo-Yo Ma, having only been playing the cello for maybe a month at that point. And I, you know, I was telling him about it and... <laughs> And he, I, he was, you know, asking me, you know, what are you playing? Do you have any favorite pieces? What do you love about the instrument? And that moment actually really stuck with me because, well, I didn't realize just how insane, that's a bad choice of word, just how, you know, just how wild and near preposterous that it was that I was having this conversation. Here's Yo-Yo Ma. Um one of the greatest musicians in the world talking to an eight-year-old, uh, you know, like I was any other colleague. And mm -hmm. it really left a strong impression on me uh, that I carry with me now in my professional days of, you know, just, um, you know, how you interact with people and, you know, what it means as a performer and what it means as somebody who people seek out for entertainment and inspiration, uh, you know, what, what those, what those little interactions, the, the impact that they can really leave. 
Uh, so anyway, played cello, played an orchestra. I, the conducting bug was really only planted for me when I was 14 years old. First time I played in the NEC Youth Symphony Orchestra, which Mike played in a couple of years prior to that. And uh, we were, this was my first time playing in a full orchestra. And we were having our first rehearsal for, and it was Dvorak's New World Symphony. And I was like playing, sitting like six stand cello or something like that. So <laughs> when you're in that part of the cello section, you're really more in the trombone section and in the oboe <laughs> section. <laughs> but but um, I, it was I was sitting there during one of those twenty bar rest periods where you know sometimes you're not playing. And I remember just kind of uh, looking around the room and being absolutely fascinated by the phenomenon of the orchestra you know, hundred different kids in the room, each kind of doing their own separate individual thing, each focused on their parts. Uh, but somehow out of all of this organized chaos, there was harmony. And from that moment forward, I was really interested in how all of that fit together. And increasingly, as I'm sitting in rehearsal, I'm even more interested in that level of function of an orchestra than I am in what my cello part is. And, uh, you know, I'm sort of observing the conductor's interactions with other sections. And eventually that becomes, oh, why are they pointing out that, but not that? Or, oh, you know, he should really tell the violas to do this. <laughs> so, so you were a backseat conductor. In other absolutely. Words. Abso absolutely was a backseat conductor. And, um, and again, at, all through high school, never had designs to be a professional musician, really never had designs to be a professional cellist, as much as Mike says that I was an aspiring one. Uh, loved music, but was raised with the ethos of make your money elsewhere and spend it on music. Nonetheless, that didn't stop me from trying to get up on the podium, um, which, you know, you kind of have to have that uh, that slightly unreasonable level of conviction to get up there to begin with. And so uh, my first conducting lessons were with a, uh, a local conductor in the Boston area named Jeffrey Rink when I was 17 years old in his kitchen over the summer. Mm. And I was very fortunate to go to a public school system that had an incredible music program. And I had uh, three teachers who I, you know, uh, one of them has unfortunately passed away, but who I stayed in contact with, you know, through my early adult life, um, uh, Brian O'Connell, Jeffrey Leonard, and Janet Haas, uh, who she was my orchestra teacher. And she was the first one who let me get up in front of an orchestra when in my senior year, I kind of cavalierly asked her if I could conduct a piece. And without really taking two seconds to really uh, scrutinize it, she said, yes, what would you like to conduct? And uh, so I wound up conducting a movement from Dvorak New World, which held such significance for me. And uh, going forward from there, uh, I did my uh, I did my undergrad at Harvard, and I went to study government. But I also knew in the back of my mind that there were a lot of on-campus conducting opportunities, so I could continue to dip into both pools. Uh, and I had an advisor who told me, you know, you don't choose music; music chooses you. And I didn't really know what that meant when he told me that. But uh, after I got the music directorship of a wonderful organization called the Bach Society Orchestra, which is an all undergraduate ensemble on Harvard's campus, going back uh, almost 75 years now, I think. And there's a, there's a really uh, distinguished 
history to this orchestra. I mean, Alan Gilbert was the music director at one point. John Adams, John Harbison were music directors of this orchestra. Hugh Wolfe. And uh, after about a semester of conducting that orchestra, I was realizing that... uh, Conducting and score study and rehearsal preparation, that was the one thing where I was really never finding the bottom. And my patience with everything else that I was doing was starting to run out. And it was just, I I hit that point that every conductor and I think every musician hits when they're deciding to pursue this uh, really, uh, you know, uh, sometimes perilous professional pathway, which is I can't, I can't not do it. I can, you know, I can't, I can't do anything else. I have to do this. And uh, from there forward, uh, it was, you know, took a year off, focused on music 100% for the first time in my life, went on to graduate school at New England Conservatory, uh, studied at the Aspen Music Festival, and that at Aspen was where I uh, got noticed by somebody. To this day, I still don't know who, uh, you know, when the Kansas City Symphony called and said, hey, who's coming up through the ranks at Aspen? We're doing an assistant conductor search. I still don't know who gave them my name, but that was where it happened. And the rest we've already talked about. Yeah, it's it's so interesting. I think uh, every musician kind of has a story like this of what it is that drew them into a career in music. Because for most of us, not all, um, I, think, I think we all grew up uh, either being told that it was you know, a bad idea. We should, you know, stay in school, uh, make our money, however you put it, make our, make your money, uh, doing something else and spend it on music. Um, you know, and if it wasn't explicitly told to us, somehow there's an intuition that this is a hard way to make a living, but if you have a passion for it, you know, you can't help it. It, it chooses you. And, and for all of us, I think we have that, uh, experience in one way or another. And, and in one way or another, it really, I think it's part of what makes the community of musicians so tight because we've all had that um, had that incredible moment in our lives where we choose to do this thing. Uh, we know it's it's um, it's going to be a hard road, but it's going to be a, an incredibly rewarding road, and it's uh, it's amazing to think about now too uh, with everything going on that COVID. You know, there there will be a future for music, and I think um, you know all of us uh, who do this are going to continue to be validated in our uh insanity for for doing this and our passion for it so um it's great to hear you tell that story so uh one of the things uh, here at beethoven walks into a bar it's written into the contract it's in the bylaws uh, hopefully you read your rider it's required uh by federal state and local uh governments everywhere we have to ask you two very important questions number one is what is your favorite drink, either alcoholic, non-alcoholic, beverage, really, of choice? Uh, and secondly, if you were having such a beverage in a place like a bar or a cafe, in a park, in your living room, what would you ask Beethoven? Wow. That second, <laughs> that, 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 that second question, I, 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 was, I was just sitting here thinking about alcohol, and then that second question just... <laughs> Just blew my mind. Also, what I was thinking is, wait, I have a rider? I know. I was thinking, wait, we have contracts? What's happening? Talk talk to your agent. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Okay. So my favorite alcoholic beverage, um, I would say, I mean, obviously I have a rotation, but if I had to pick a favorite, it would be um, a gin martini. 
gin martini Ooh. straight up with olives. Dirty or and not not dirty? D- depends on how I'm feeling that day, Jason. Yeah, like, <laughs> All right. No. Uh, <laughs> uh, generally, generally no. Um, it, uh, I'll 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 not go with the dirty martini more often than not, and uh, that's I, I I pick that one because that's it's actually not the drink that I have with greatest frequency, but that's um that's my post concert dinner, uh, especially after a good concert, you know, drink my sort of, uh, you know, celebratory reward for myself. And, um, let's see. And if I were sitting at, and actually, you know, one of the things during the, during this pandemic, we drove, uh, to my in-laws house, which is where a lot of our wedding gifts are still sitting in their basement because, you know, we, we've had a pretty transient existence for the last four years. <laughs> and so uh, there, there was just no place to put them all. But, you know, we're, we're sort of pitching a tent now that we, you know, now that we know we're going to be uh, working from home for a while and found that uh, apparently I received a cocktail making kit. Uh, mm. for, so I've started making my own martinis at home now, which has been a, which has been a fun thing. So if I were sitting at home, sipping one of these martinis that I've made myself, uh, talking to Beethoven and I asked him, um, uh, what would I ask him? I think if I were sitting at home, uh, sipping, you know, this, this gin martini that I made myself, uh, and chatting with Beethoven, I think, uh, the thing that I would I think the thing that I would ask him is, dude, what should we do about the end of the fifth symphony? Like, I, I, I can't hear the cellos and basses. I just <laughs> can't, 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 can't hear them. And there, you know, there are any number of, uh, you know, there are any number of solutions. One of the most creative ones that I've heard. But by the way, what I'm talking about is there's a you know there, there's a canon at the end of this uh, you know at the end of the fifth symphony where most of the instruments in the orchestra are going you know yum bum bum ba 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 ba. But then almost like it's in a round, the cellos and the basses and the bassoons are doing it you know offset by a little bit, and you can never ever hear them. And so it's one of those things where everybody who's seen the score knows something really cool is happening, but very few people who are actually listening to it are ever aware of it. One of the most creative solutions that I've heard uh, to that question is to add the add the bass trombone, which, you know, is either um, uh, creative or sacrilege, depending on how you look at it. So I think I would, I think I would ask Beethoven, you know, what, what, what do, what do you want? Because there's a, there's a problem here. What's, what's, what's your solution? <laughs> backseat composer. You went from a backseat conductor to a backseat. <laughs> I'm kidding. No, but that, 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 that is an infamous moment, and it is a problem. Did Mahler fix that moment? Because I know Mahler reorchestrated Beethoven's symphonies. I wonder. I'll have to go back and. See if he might have fixed that. I'm not sure if he did or not. Yeah, I've got to take a look at that. I I have seen that Mahler uh, orchestration of Beethoven's sim- Beethoven's Fifth, but I can't remember what it looked like. Yeah. There's some there are some there are some really insightful things and some really eyebrow raising things in that Mahler arrangement. That's Mahler. Yep. Bass trombone <laughs> cannot be the answer. <laughs> All right. So on that note, uh, you guys know that we love to play a little game here with guests from our Kansas City Symphony family called Bar Talk. But this week, in honor of our guest Bostonian, we are going to do something a little different. Bar Talk. Bar Talk. Was that okay? Bar Talk. 
Yeah. And uh, Beethoven walks into a bar. This is a Texan trying to do a Boston accent. It's good. Fail. Fail. <laughs> it's good. Okay, so we're going to see who is the biggest sports nerd here today. And as always, the winner will walk away with the invaluable opportunity to recommend some listening to our loyal listeners this week. Uh, as you know, um, we will be keeping score. And for every answer that I like, you will hear this sound. Yeah. And if I am listening and I do not like your answer, you will hear this sound. Right? Points are going to be added up. Our producer, Tim, is going to keep track of all of those points. And as I said, the winner will get to recommend some listening. Are we ready? Yes. I'm ready. All right. Let's do it. All right, gents. So make sure we keep these answers to 30 seconds or less. The first question is, in regard to best foul weather fans, which city stands behind their teams the most, even when they lose? Aram, you're up first. Green Bay Packers fans. They what? stand by them the most. The Green Bay Packers never lose. What kind of answer is that? They always win. You know how cold it is in Lambeau Field? Absolutely. True. That's true. That's true. All right. I hear that. All right, Jason, how about you? Well, this is so obvious. It's Cleveland. I mean, Cleveland never wins anything, and they have <laughs> rabid fans. I'm one of them. Rabid? Um, rabid fans. The last time Cleveland won anything was in 2016 with the Cavs. The Browns haven't even been to a Super Bowl, and the Indians last won in 1948. And yet, Cleveland fans are diehard, so it's definitely Cleveland. I, oh, I yeah. see how this works. <laughs> <laughs> ah, yes. I didn't, I, I didn't use all my time. I, okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Mike, how about you? Wow, well, I'm, I'm surprised uh, that no one mentioned uh, our hometown of Boston, because... You know, now we feel like Boston's just this powerhouse of sports and, you know, all the teams. But I remember as a kid, there was a long stretch. The Red Sox were not good. The Patriots were not good. The Bruins were not good. People still, I mean, they loved them. No, no, no Boston I fans I think the here. 26 championships ever since have made up for it. And the Celtics have always been good, Mike. No, I'm the also, Celtics I'm were bad for a while. I'm also oh, not sure that you're going to get a lot of foul weather at a, at a hockey game. At a Bruins game. <laughs> well, that's true. Nice. Well, that is true. Man, but all right. just for good measure, Mike's getting one more. Ouch. <laughs> Dang. That was like three or four horns. I know. Yes. Well, you know, that's just how it goes. All right. Next question. Which sportscaster would you want to hear commentating on an orchestra concert? Ooh. And we're going to hear from Jason first. Ooh, that's a tough one. Um, well... Rex Hudler, the uh, caller commentator of the Royals, who joined us for a family concert, actually did this and commentated uh, our performance of PDQ box version of Beethoven 5, speaking of Beethoven 5. So And good. he did do a great job. But I'd like to hear Al Michaels, because he's one of my favorite sportscasters of all time. I loved him on Monday Night Football. I love him on Sunday Night Football. I think he's the perfect balance between informative and uh, entertaining. So I'd go Al Michaels. Excellent answers. All right. Uh, let's see. Mike, how about you? You know, for me, there's only one choice. One day in my life, I want to be playing something like Afternoon of a Fawn or Daphnis and just hear over it Chris Berman going, <laughs> It could go all the way! <laughs> all right. As much as I love that answer, I have to. Sorry. Man. What? Sorry. Wow. 
I mean, I may or may not be harboring some resentment over last week's loss um, to the barbecue. I don't know if this is personal, but Mike, sorry. Wow. Yikes. (laughs) All right, Aaron, (laughs) sportscaster, you would want to hear commentate on an orchestra concert. Um, I'll have to uh, give a couple, but I'll start out with Doc Emmerich, who is uh, just recently retired as uh, the the voice of the NHL on NBC. Who just like he's a you know he's an artist and so so smooth with something very fast paced and complicated. Uh, I'll add on top of that. Um, I'll, I'll I'll have to say Al Michaels also uh, because he knows. You know, he, he, he knows when to when to let silence do more talking than his words, which is something that I think you're, you'd, you'd need for an orchestra concert. Um, and then uh, the last one that I'll add to that is, a, you know, probably slightly a less familiar name, uh, but he was the play-by-play guy for a long time for the New England Patriots radio, uh, Gil Santos, who I just, whose voice I associate with a lot of happy memories. And there was a time actually in high school that I wanted to be a play-by-play announcer. And uh, mm-hmm. he, you know, and I, I, I did it for our local access channel and he was kind of who I, who I modeled my, uh, my style after. I love that you wanted to be a play-by-play announcer. You, you do great at that. Nice. All right. Our next question is which big three was better? Paul Pierce, Kevin Garnett, and Ray Allen of the Celtics or LeBron James, Kyrie Irving, and Kevin Love of the Cavs. Mike? Oh, boy. Well, you know, as a New Englander, I remember Paul Pierce, Kevin Garnett, and Ray Allen. Wow, I'm not even done. (laughs) 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 But, uh, you know, I love watching LeBron, and I don't quite know who those two other guys are, but I'm sure they're also really good at the basketballs. So I think think I'll go with them. I don't follow much basketball. The Cavs, big three, okay. That's All right. it. You can buzz me now. <laughs> Aram, how about you? I mean, it, it, do, do I even have to say? Of, of course it's KG, Paul Pierce, and Ray Allen. I, You know, number one on just uh, drama alone, I think you have to, you know, KG brings the drama every time he shows up. And, you know, Ray Allen, you know, Ray, Ray Allen, the, the, the Benedict Arnold of the Celtics, who eventually went on to play with LeBron. And then, I mean, finally, in terms of, you know, which big three has, you know, the, the, the most iconic dialogue? Come on. Anything is possible. <laughs> Man. All right, Jason, last to okay. you. This is so easy. It's clearly, if it's between these two big three, it's definitely LeBron, Kyrie, and Kevin. I mean, they brought the first championship to Cleveland sports in probably 50, no, 60 years. That's a big deal, uh, first of all. Second of all, how did Kyrie Irving do once he went to Boston? Aram can answer mm. that. Not so mm. well. So that he, he needed LeBron and Kevin Love as part of that trio. But honestly, neither one of these big three are the best. The big three that is the best of all time, is Mike Gordon, Shannon Finney, Kayla Bergroth, our flute section in the Kansas City Symphony. They are the best big three of all time. Can we just disqualify him for for that incredible show of sycophancy? Yeah. He's pandering, (laughs) but it was fine. I just want some bells. I just want some bells. Wow. All right. We're down to the final question. I have a feeling it's uh, really, it's a a close race between uh, Jason and Aram and Mike. I don't think you're doing very well. 
Uh, but but we'll we'll see. Maybe you can make it up on this one. So for the three of you, what is your most thrilling sports memory? We'll start with Aram. Uh, most thrilling sports memory. Uh, it has to be. Oh man, this is this this is a tough one. It it's you know I can't I can't really choose between these two. It has to be either the entire experience of the 2004 Red Sox playoffs where Ooh. they finally won a World Series, but um, you know especially beating the Yankees in the ALCS, uh, but also uh, nothing you know no, nothing nothing can exceed the unbridled joy of Adam Vinatieri. Uh, kicking the Super Bowl winning field goal in Super Bowl 36, which is the first championship that I got to experience uh, in my lifetime. Excellent answers. Jason, your most thrilling sports memory? You might think that I would say that it was the 2016 Cleveland Cavaliers NBA championship because that was definitely amazing. I was in a uh, Buffalo Wild Wings in D.C. with my wife at the time because we were oh, delicious. Uh, at Indianapolis for a wedding that weekend of a good friend of mine. And that was incredible. But I remember being a little kid in the old Cleveland Municipal Stadium and my dad's company had Lowe's seats and it was right next to WKNR, the radio broadcast. And it was so quiet in there because there was no fans because the Indians were terrible. And I remember one day a foul ball came and I reached out my glove and I just missed it. And I heard Tom Hamilton on the other side of the wall call that this little kid just missed a foul ball. And I thought, oh my God, Tom Hamilton just talked about me on the radio. So oh. that was amazing. Wow. You're cool. famous. <laughs> oh. All right. So Mike, what is your most thrilling sports memory? You know, for me, honestly, what, wow. I didn't even start. <laughs> I didn't even get started. <laughs> Sorry, continue. <laughs> when I uh when I first came to Kansas City, I can remember going to Wow. <laughs> Sorry, I'll I'll put the horn down. I remember uh when I first came to Kansas City, you know, the Royals went through a little bit of a tough streak and you'd go to a game sometimes and there would be so few people in there. Uh, you know, you could hear the pitcher catching the ball from the catcher uh, before the next pitch. So when uh, it, it's really a two-year memory because, uh, of course, the Royals went to the series twice, two years in a row. And when they finally won that uh, second time, it was just one of the most amazing things uh, to watch. Not only that they did it, but the way they did it. And uh, it was so exciting in the city. Uh, and so, yeah, that is my fondest sports memory. There you go. Wow, there he it got, is. He got a bell. One point. We Woo got there. All right. I had to give in on that one because that was an excellent memory. All right. We are looking for our scores. All right. Coming in in third place with negative 10 points. <laughs> Mr. Michael Gordon, and I, I have to reiterate that um, I might be a little bit jaded because I did not win the barbecue lunch last week, but who knows. Uh, in second place is Mr. Jason Sieber, and our winner of Ba Talk today is <laughs> Aram Demergen. Yeah. Woo! Woo! So, Aram, you, you have won the highly coveted um, uh, position of getting to recommend some listening to our audience this week what are you listening to that you'd like for others to check out oh man um well there's no shortage of great music out there um i'll recommend uh the the symphony that is currently on my on my desk that i'm studying which is sibelius's seventh symphony 
uh, not, not studying it for any particular reason, just, uh, you know, making my way, making my way through it as part of my pandemic study plan. Uh, I'll recommend, uh, a piece by Adolphus Hailstork, Symphony Number no. One, uh, which he wrote for chamber orchestra, a, a piece that I only became aware of a few months ago and, uh, which I find, uh, really just a lot of fun and with a, quite profound slow movement. And uh, as my third piece, um, I think I will think I'll recommend, you know, there's a, there's a very cool piece that I was listening to by um, a living composer named uh, Camille Pépin, that's P-E-P-I-N, called The Sound of Trees. And it's a concerto for clarinet, cello, and orchestra. Very, uh, just very, very, very evocative. Um, I think it's, you know, sort of a, I think, I think both, both that piece and the Hailstork that I mentioned are good pieces to listen to if you're somebody who doesn't necessarily think you like music by living composers. So I just want to clarify, you're spilling Pepin for us, but Hailstork, we're on our own. (laughs) That's an easy one. Come on. (laughs) Hmm. Well, Aram, it's been so amazing for us to catch up with you today, and uh, congratulations on your big Ba Talk win, and uh, we wish you all the best, and I know uh, we'll continue to keep in touch, and we can't wait to see you soon. Thanks for having me. This is so great to, I, I keep in touch with all of you, but it's so great to talk to all of you at once, and you know, to, to see you on our Zoom. This has been just a ton of fun trip down memory lane, and uh, you know... Let's do it again, you know, sometime when I have a podcast, when I'm, as, when I'm, when I'm as cool as you. A podcast. <laughs> podcast. A podcast. Thanks, Aram. <laughs> Next week's guests are two of the funniest and most musical guys I've ever met. Gareth and Matt formed the comedy percussion duo Buckets and Boards and perform regularly in Branson, Missouri. They have a residency on Disney Cruise Lines and have even graced the stage in Hellsberg Hall. Join us next time as we talk to them about playing buckets, boards, squeaky turtles, and recorders with their noses. All that and more next time on Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. <laughs>